0: Tonight i like to speak about the Four Noble Truths, the essential teaching on the Buddhist tradition, and see how it can be connected with our view. So the Buddha lived uh, five century before Christ, in the fifth century before Christ and it is said that he taught for about forty years all in the middle part of India. So his teaching is very vast and when it had been recorded by his disciples so it amounts to many many volumes and there is one temple in Burma where everything has been uh, um, graved and stone, and you can see all the teaching of the Buddha there. Very nice uh, place in, in Mandalay in Burma. So it's very vast. So certainly the Buddha did say many things. From the tradition, it seems that before dying, it just called on Ananda, He's the disciple, his very close disciple, and he just again expressed something about his teaching. And he said, he's supposed to have said, all compound phenomena are impermanent. Be a light unto yourself. So we may imagine that, if just before dying, after having said so many things, he still wanted to say something, then maybe it is something also essential to his teaching, and also, when we imagine that at the time when the Buddha was going to die, questions question may have arise among his disciples, so whom should we follow afterwards? So when he says all the compound phenomena are impermanent, so he's just expressing a truth, a logical truth, a scientific truth. What is compound? Necessarily, can just be separated and change. Be a light unto yourself. It's very important. So he did not say, now you will follow uh, Sariputra, or I don't know who was the most uh, um, senior monk at this time. No, he said, be a light unto yourself. And I think it gives the flavor of the Buddha's teaching. So how he appear and I like to appear towards his community, towards the, the monk surrounding him, not as somebody who wants to be obeyed or adore. He just wants to send every of his disciples back to their own light. So it's a very important aspect. The Buddha's discovery is not the fruit of a revelation that he has received from some god and that he has been chosen which then will be just a very, very peculiar being and this revelation, we we, we should take it from him and not not getting it directly within our own experience. But that's not the case. It's just the fruit of a very clear seeing and a very clear understanding. That the truth that the Buddhas discover, and this clear understanding and this clear seeing is something that is open to every one of us. So is that th- something that one may refer to one's own light, to one's own wisdom? He also said in one of his. Uh, sermon, he said, don't believe a teacher because of his reputation, don't believe a teacher because of the beauty of his words, or because the apparent meaning of what is said, but really see deeply the ultimate meaning of the word, and then, if it doesn't make sense for you to you understand it deeply. Then at this time you can put into practice what you've heard. So I think it's also a very important aspect. Then is not because somebody is well known that uh, one should listen to, but is really coming back to one's own understanding, to one's own light. So the light that we may rely on is ourselves, our own experience in the deepest sense also in the way of meditating about the teaching and seeing its deepest meaning. And then if we see that, then to put into practice. Or if it does not have deep meaning, then just to drop it. It seems to me that Buddha was very uh, down-to-earth, very practical man. So he was born in India, he was a prince, so son of a king, and then according to the legend, according to what is told, but the story are very, very late because they just, the story about the life of the Buddha are told usually one thousand years after the passing away of the Buddha, so we may imagine that is not all that precise, but it may still tell us something. And that's what is important for us. We have sometimes a tendency to want to find um, historical accuracy. For us it is important. Forgetting the deeper meaning that even some legend or myth may have for us. So certainly when this the life of the Buddha was told, it is something that can also apply to oneself even if we are not a prince. So what we see in his uh, in his life, so he was living in a beautiful way, um, enjoying all the different aspects of life in a beautiful palace full of musicians, dancers and having good food. We may have different view on a happy life but we can imagine or translate it in our own way. Then his father was hiding all the different aspect, difficult aspect of life, fearing that the Buddha seeing the difficulty of life and the shortcoming may leave the palace and then enter a spiritual life. So it is said that his father just hide all the different problems that could arise. So in a sense that like we are in our own society, trying to hide all the different problems and giving us some kind of guideline, what we should look for in life. You can just look at all the um, newspaper, all those panels in the street and knowing what is good to make a good life, you know. So, any society is also giving us the values that are good for all of us. Well, the Buddha was in this situation, so his father, the king, Just thought what is good for him and uh, push away all the different difficulties. But the Buddha awakened from his dream like life, in his palace just enjoying life. He just uh, saw that actually that was not so satisfying. So that's nice for us. Buddha awakened and he sees that is not so nice in the palace, but what does it refer to us? you know? What is our palace that we have to awaken from? Maybe some kind of dream that, I don't know, know, to be a famous writer, maybe that's my dream, or anything else. So one may have one's own dream, and one may also have to awaken from that situation, to really see our own situation. So that is up to us and every one of us to ponder to live one's own palace and just to open maybe to a deeper meaning in life. So when the Buddha awakened to that aspect and finally he saw that there were a problem in life that there could be old age, sickness, death, then he decided to quit the palace. So he went away, they say that, when everybody was sleeping. He went away, and then he cut his hair, turned his clothes, so put on very poor clothes, and then went on, went on to look for a teacher and to inquire in the deeper meaning of life. So the first thing, then, after his search, which lasted for many years, when he awakened in Bodhgaya. So the first teaching he gave was a teaching about the Four Noble Truths, the first teaching that he gave, which is uh, the ground teaching explaining all the different aspects of Buddha's uh, uh, doctrine. So the first of those Noble noble Truths is the Truth of Suffering. So the Truth of Suffering that the Buddha is teaching is that The situation in which we are is not a situation which is completely satisfactory. There is some limitation, some uh, shortcoming. Because of old age, death, sickness, not to be, not to have what we want and not, and to have what we don't want. So we don't have a, a deep freedom. There are things we don't want and they just arise, and things that we want and they don't come. So that's not... the Buddha is very demanding. One could just say, well, that's life, you know, sometimes I want something I get, sometimes I don't get. Well, he he really was quite demanding and said, no, this situation for me, I can't accept. I want to go deeper and see if I can find a situation where really I will be free. And not just depending on circumstance to be happy or unhappy. So he was really deeply questioning. Then the second of the Noble Truths that he explained is that all what is arising and happening to us is depending on cause and condition. It just does not happen by chance. And the cause and condition which are bringing about this difficult situation and this situation which is not completely satisfactory is what he called the Karma. And karma, it comes from the Sanskrit root kri, which means to do. So it comes from actions. And he explained that a good action will bring happiness. A bad action will bring suffering. And a neutral action may bring happiness or suffering, depending on what it is linked to. Uh, so that's quite important. Then, good action brings to happiness. Bad action to suffering and neutral to either happiness or suffering. But in the first truth of the suffering was also included all the different types of happiness that may arise. For the Buddha, the highest happiness that one may experience, even as a fruit of developing concentration, which in the Indian tradition meant to be to take birth in the God's land, very, very peaceful, where for ages one will just be in a very blissful state of mind. And for the Buddha it's also included in the truth of suffering. All those different experiences are included in the truth of suffering because they change. They are not lasting, everlasting happiness. They change and they will change finally in something which will not be satisfactory. Even those gods that all the Indian tradition give name and they all have their own history, then this state is not something that is worth getting. So now we get to the cause of suffering, it's quite interesting. The karma, those actions, good actions bring to happiness. But happiness is also included in the truth of suffering. Bad actions lead us to abuse suffering a neutral action to either. So, one can see from that, that any action will always bring to suffering. Since even happiness in this sense is seen as the truth of suffering. So, that's what Buddha is teaching there, what the Buddhist doctrine is telling. So, going deeper into this law of karma, so. What is motivating all the different actions, good, bad or neutral, is usually one state of mind which may be deluded by desire, by anger, or just by ignorance. So this state of mind will lead us in some kind of uh, action which will bring their result as kind of suffering that we make our happiness or kind of suffering that we call suffering. So, <coughs> the Buddha went on on his teaching and uh, luckily he spoke about something else. He spoke about the cessation of suffering, the third of the noble truths. So he said, But there is a cessation possible. There is a state possible where one would not be subjected anymore to suffering. That he had discovered. after meditating and and, uh, searching for so long. So you explain that, that state of cessation of all the different types of suffering. And with that, the question is, is that possible that uh, such a state of non-suffering may exist, if Mm -hmm. the human mind is by nature covered by anger, desire, jealousy and all what we can imagine. If it is the nature of the human mind, then there is no way that one can get freedom because all our actions are going to be motivated by anger, desire, ignorance. So, if all those different aspects, negative aspects of the mind, they are of such a nature that it is completely inherent to the nature of the mind, let's say, like um, the blue color of a stone, of a blue stone. You can't take the blue color away, and there you have the stone, and there you have the blue color. So if this intimacy between the bad aspect, delusion aspect of our mind and our mind, are so much linked that we cannot separate them, then there is no way that we can develop any kind of action which will not be motivated by those type of delusions. So that's quite important aspect. Then, we have to reflect on the nature of the mind. If it were so, maybe some kind of psychologist or psychoanalyst may believe that nowadays. Therefore, that the human nature to be uh, clouded and, and uh, deluded in this way. So the Buddha explained that the nature of the mind is like, uh, like crystal. It is not by nature clouded or by nature uh, stained by any of those attitudes of anger, desire, illusion. Those things just do appear uh, at some times, but they cannot change the deepest nature of the mind. They are like clouds in the sky. So when the wind is appearing, the sky, the sky is clear again. Which means that the mind in its nature, here we speak in a general sense, is clear. So like a prism, if you look, or like a crystal, then you bring some red clothes and the crystal is red. You bring a yellow clothes and the crystal is yellow. So this red or yellow can be uh, happiness, suffering, uh, attachment, desire whatsoever. So it does appear when you look at the crystal that it's yellow or that it's red, but actually that just kind of reflection is not, does not affect the deepest nature of the crystal. So our mind in a general sense, and that can be experienced of course in our meditation, that all those things arising, anger, desire and whatsoever, does not transform the deepest, the, the nature of our mind. They go away and there the nature of our mind stay clear. That's an important aspect. So the cessation of all the suffering and all illusion and delusion is expressed in Buddhist tradition as reaching that which is not conditioned, reaching that which is not limited by any condition. If it is what the Buddha was looking for, this ultimate freedom, then if it is limited then there was maybe no reason to leave his palace, you know. So, this state, the uh, truth of cessation, is said to be non-conditioned, is unconditioned. What does it mean? Again, like yesterday evening, we tried to see if the truth were true. So, what is the truth of what is unconditioned, means that it cannot depend on anything. Not depending on time, not depending on cause, not depending on anything. So, the cessation that we may be looking for does not depend on anything. So, that may arise some questions. If it does not depend on anything, what are we going to do? That may have some effect on what is unconditioned. And that's something very important in the Buddhist tradition that is spoken of at different time, and then we put it right at the beginning, but that's quite important. If, if what we are aiming at, our deepest motivation, is the unconditioned, and ultimate freedom which is not depending on anything, then what are we going to do? What can we do? Different way of expressing that, speaking about that in the Chinese tradition. One teacher said, like the mind is like a mirror, and the dust is just resting on that, and our work in meditation is to clean this mirror, so it can be very bright and just uh, unstained. So, you see, mirror, and the dust is coming there, and you clean it, so that's our meditation. Well, another teacher said, there is no mirror. So where can the dust alight? No mean, where can the dust alight? So that's refer more to our point of view and I will come back to that later. So the Buddha explained then the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path, explaining how to reach the third noble truth, which is the truth of cessation. So there is two links there. First he explains suffering, then he explains how suffering is coming about in the second noble truth. Then he explains cessation, or the truth of nirvana. Then in the fourth noble truth, the Buddha explains how we can practice the path to reach this truth of cessation, if it is at all possible. That's what we keep open. So in the truth of the path, it is explained or taught traditionally within the triple practice and if you have seen we don't have so many Buddha and images here but sometimes you see the wheel representing Buddha's teaching. So you have the wheel and you have the center part and you have and do you call those uh, spokes? the spokes and the center part of the wheel and, and the outside part. So what is holding all together that is morality the center part is concentration, and the spokes are wisdom. So we can see that in most of the temples in in Asia. So morality in Buddhist tradition is not a matter of law. You know that we have a list of all do and don't. So you do this and you don't do that, and uh, you know like we have in some traditions. So we have to behave in accordance with what has been written down. So it's a matter of obeying that. Uh, list of laws is not seen in this way I think it's seen in a much um, more subtle way it's seen, morality is seen that anything any action or motivation which would increase the suffering or the confusion in oneself or in other is to be avoided anything which would decrease the suffering in oneself or in other, and decrease the confusion, then that has to be put into practice. So we may imagine that some action may be good at some point and not good at some other point. So it's sends us back to our own responsibility. We don't have just our list and say, let's check, oh that I can do, that I can't, you know. We just have to check inside of ourselves deeply and see if it is proper to do or not to do. So that is how moiety is seen. Of course there is a list of um, things to do for the monks, for example, but the Buddha gathered many people from very different uh, traditions and castes, so he had to make it possible for them to live together. So there were some rules, you know, to keep uh, place clean and, and whatsoever, and rule, rules of celibacy and so on. Imagine in a monastery of, of 1000 monks, if then they get all their girlfriend, and that may be quite difficult to handle such a monastery with all the practical problems. You know? So one can understand that for sake of simplicity and being concentrated in the spiritual quest, that the Buddha made a set of rules, yet is not the essence of uh, Buddhist morality. So the second aspect of this uh, path is uh, concentration. So concentration is not something that we don't know and that we have to create it completely new. Mm -hmm. It's something that we all know, that we all use in our daily life without concentration. We would never have gone to school even for a, a few months. So we need concentration. But in the meditation tradition we need better concentration. So concentration is a Capacity of the mind to hold on to an object without moving. Choosing one object. And just keeping that. Not taking one and another one and another one and another one where one could not know this object very deeply. So many objects are used for the development of concentration. So in Ancient tradition one could take a, a circle, you know, white circle for example. And just keep that in mind. A monk would go or the meditator would go and stay for weeks or months just concentrating on that, a white circle. Could be other colour. Or on the human body, or on impermanence. Something which was also very often practiced and which is still nowadays in all the Tibetan texts is also mentioned, is the four boundless, the four boundless thoughts, which are love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So when one would develop concentration on that, when we just take the, the feeling of love, for example, and the wish for the happiness of others, like we have done a little bit this morning, and just concentrate on that, keeping on reciting some sentences, wishing uh, all beings happiness. And one will just stay with that for weeks and months, till the mind gets very, very quiet. Then when the mind has this quality of quietness and can stay with one object, then the meditator can use it and place it on different objects to inquire and to know those objects much more deeply. And of course, one place where this mind will be uh, set, it is on one's own nature. When the mind is very quiet, then one would place it on one's own nature and to know it very deeply, and maybe then to know the the true nature of ourselves. So that was one um, set of objects of concentration. Then another one was much more subtle, which were either on infinite space, infinite consciousness, on nothing, or neither consciousness nor non-consciousness. So people would do meditate on that. So it means that their mind, when the concentration is developed, then the meditator is only its object, so is only space, or is only consciousness, nothing else appearing to his mind or her mind. So the mind will get very deeply quiet. And those practices they are those who are supposed to um, lead us to this highest happiness in the worldly sense which is the happiness of the of the gods. One would abide for centuries in a very peaceful and blissful way which the Buddha has included in the truth of suffering. So that's the de- development of concentration, one could also use some form of Buddha or some mandala, those kind of... mandala is not uh, a painting or is not uh, a graphic, mandala actually is a place and one would see oneself in that place, in this beautiful palace, you know, with different doors and uh, ornamentation and all that made out of uh, light. So that is also used in the Tibetan tradition, certainly very powerful object of concentration, though maybe not the easiest of all the objects. But that is really practiced a lot in the Tibetan tradition. Now about the development of wisdom, the third element of the path. So wisdom, which is called prajna, so is developed on the practice of what is called vipassana, which is in Tibetan is laktong, means a clear seeing, a seeing deeper. So that's what may give rise to uh, wisdom. This practice of a meditation and, and a clear seeing help us to see the true nature of oneself and of the world, of all the phenomena. And the true nature is that everything is changing, that nothing can really bring any lasting satisfaction. And that nothing has true and self existence. Everything is just arising due to cause and condition and then changing. So that's what uh, the wisdom helped to develop this aspect and realizing the true nature of ourselves and uh, of our phenomena. When one sees that, then the grasping of the mind stops. When one sees that everything is changing and nothing has true and self-existence, the mind doesn't grasp because it sees that there is no reason and nothing to be grasped there. And the non-grasping is the freedom of the mind. So all different approaches in meditation come down to non-grasping. Whatever their setup, maybe, it come down to non-grasping. So now, can we see this triple practice of morality, concentration and wisdom as a technique and as a tool in order to bring us to the end condition? So we have a setup of techniques we can uh, use and make them even more and more sophisticated. So, can that be seen as tools to bring us to the end condition? So, we just saw that the problem with the karma, that if we are practicing our meditation, certainly it will be a virtuous action, a good action. Then, if it has some result, some fruit, it's going to be happiness. And happiness is not what we are looking for in the deepest sense, we are looking for ultimate freedom which is beyond happiness and suffering. So if we cannot practice good action, and obviously bad do not uh, help, and neutral also not because they are linked either to good and bad, then we are in a, I would say, difficult situation. So to see the meditation as a technique or the tool, it means that we are linking or subjecting meditation to some aim and is like it is in a causal uh, situation. It is to see our practice as a cause to some aim. If we look at a tool, you know what is a tool actually, if we look at at a hammer for example, it has no importance whatsoever in itself. If we don't have a nail to nail down. Any tool is just the most inauthentic object, because it's just there, linked between a cause and an effect, but actually is useless. So the way of seeing the world that we have developed, human mankind has developed a lot, is seeing everything as a cause to something else. We may imagine that very early, they very old ancestors have tried to build up tools, you know, to, I don't know, to kill animals or, or whatsoever. And then we have become so sophisticated we can even make airplanes. Of course an airplane is completely useless if we don't want to go somewhere. You know, you can have an airplane in your garden if your garden is big enough, but it doesn't seem uh, make, making sense. So any tools, however sophisticated they may be, they just have no importance within themselves. They are just a causal link between some action and a fruit that we are looking for. So, if we see the practice of meditation as a tool, it means that in itself it has no value whatsoever. It's just a link between a cause and a result. And this result is ultimate freedom which cannot be placed as a result. So are we in a dead end, you know, practicing anything? Virtuous will not help us, non-virtuous will not help us, neutral will not help us, if what is a cessation is not conditioned by anything. And I think that's quite an important point. You see. If we were seeing cessation or nirvana just as the the most sophisticated aspect of our conditioned world, you know, mm-hmm. it's just when everything is so subtly organized that that's nirvana. So there is a kind of continuity. Then we can fix that. We can fix it up. You see, mm-hmm. we become very skillful and we'll fix it up and fix up nirvana skillful in dealing with our conditioned world. But is it not that this cessation and the unconditioned mark a split? There is some kind of discontinuity between the world conditioned world in which we are and that which is not conditioned. That which is not conditioned cannot be in the continuity of that which is conditioned. So there's a split somewhere and that where we are, just in front of this splitting, what to do then? So that's quite important, quite important aspect, even within the practice of Dharma. So, I would like to state it in a way, so this uh, reaching of the unconditional, it consists in an impossible leap across an incredible abyss, because it is always already crossed. So we are in a paradox there, and that also how it is expressed in the tradition. When in the Doctrine tradition one says everything is is perfect to start with. So this unconditioned that we have seen somewhere in front at the end of a causal link finally is not to be found somewhere, is already here. If it were not here now then there is no way that we could do anything. No way. We can again try to be very smart but there is no way that this kind of jump could be made because it's not a matter of continuity in our causal and in our conditioned world. So what does it mean now with the law of karma saying that if we do good action we get to happiness and bad action, to suffering. So there is two types of actions of karma. One is called contaminated. And a contaminated karma can be a good action, a bad action or a neutral action. And there is also uncontaminated action. Uncontaminated karma is when one does not hold this action to be really existing Neither is the doer existing, neither is the done existing, so any action done in that light, where nothing is held as being truly existent this the it is expressed sometimes saying this lead to freedom, but in a sense, it is already freedom because the freedom is not to hold on to any true existing self or action or doer so The unconditioned, in a sense, is reached by by practicing what is not conditioned. So that's how we come down to our practice and just resting in that, not hoping, not trying to change anything, just resting in that aspect of the practice. So it's a very subtle aspect and of course By our practice, we get to understand that more and more clearly. But this aspect does not contradict all the other aspects of the gradual path that we may develop concentration uh, and uh, morality and and wisdom. There is no contradiction there and no conflicting. It's just that at one point, this jump which cannot be made uh, will be done. And maybe it is the day when we will stop trying to jump. Yet, maybe we have to be there on this edge and, uh, you know, wanting to jump, wanting to jump, uh, so many times till we really see what's happening there. And I think this aspect Of course, it's not only seen in the Dzogchen tradition, but in other Buddhist traditions, it's seen in this way. Non-causal approach. So, i like to really, um, again, say that it does not contradict any other aspect of our practice. That's what we are doing. We are practicing uh, love and compassion in the morning and uh, in the evening also. We are doing all the other uh, practice. That does not contradict or conflict. But sometimes it's good to get to the essence of what is the essential of our practice, that we may connect with that and uh, attune ourselves to this freedom which is already here. So maybe may all the being be free and reach to this freedom which is already here.